If you would, please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 32 through 36 this morning. John chapter 7, verses 32 through 36. If last week the question was raised, where is Jesus from? Uh, This morning's text asks the question, where is he going? Which is kind of an interesting uh, thing that Jesus does here in this text this morning. So last week, um, the question was raised, where is this man from? The reason for the question being asked is because the question, uh, the other question that was coming up is, doesn't this guy kind of seem like Messiah? Because he's doing all these miracles and yet, isn't it true that we're not supposed to know where Messiah is from? And we discussed last week that that was more of a rabbinical teaching than actually a biblical teaching because we have these messianic prophecies like in Micah chapter 5 where it says that the Messiah would come out of Bethlehem, that he would be born in Bethlehem. In fact, this question about where Jesus is from comes up even in the texts that follow our text this morning, as we'll see in the coming weeks. But the sort of conundrum that Jesus presents this morning to them raises this question about where is he going. So if you're able to, I know we've had you stand up and down a lot this morning, but if we have you stand one more time, if you're able to, in John chapter 7, I'm going to read aloud as you follow along. John chapter 7, verses 32 through 36. I'm reading from the ESV this morning. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John the Apostle writes, The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? You may be seated. That is the New Testament reading this morning, and may the Lord bless both the Old and New Testament reading in our hearing this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you this morning as we open your word for the gift of your word, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. And in some mysterious way, we understand that Jesus is the word and that you spoke through him creation into existence and that even as he comes to us in the incarnation, as John chapter 1 says, that he narrates the Father to us. And so, Lord, we continue to desire to understand all of those things. And we know that by your Spirit, who inspired these words in the original autographs, that you can now, for those of us who are in Christ, illuminate our understanding. And so we pray for that, and we pray that we might not just know, for knowledge alone puffs up, but that we might apply these truths this morning from your word. Lord, we bless your name this morning. We ask that you would continue to teach us Lord, I pray that you would set me aside and help me to continue to learn as well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
In uh, 1990, you're gonna, some of you are going to be totally lost on this reference. In 1990, the band called Depeche Mode, so some of you are already like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But Depeche Mode had a, a song that became popular called Personal Jesus, in which the singer promises to be second best, a personal Jesus to someone who is hurting and needing to get things off of their chest, promising to be a listening ear, and interestingly, also one who forgives. This is, of course, a play on the idea of who Jesus is, and perhaps a slight that if Jesus cannot be there for the person to whom the song is written, perhaps the singer can be the second best option. The sentiment of a personal Jesus may have infected the church more than we realize at first blush. That is, many walk around with their idea of who Jesus is and who they want him to be rather than who he proclaims himself to be. We've been exploring this idea a lot in our current study in John, and it continues to be a theme that is growing, especially concerning the religious leaders' view of Jesus. And you have to remember that in this day and age, what the religious leaders said went with with everyone. They were the ones who were looked up to. Um, Whether they were the Pharisees, who typically were the more day-by-day religious leaders, or some would follow the Sadducees, a different sect of Jews. But, But these were the ones who were looked up to. And so what they said many times was what was believed. And so as they're questioning who is Jesus, as the people are now hearing Jesus, and and we saw some of this sort of mixed response to Jesus, some, um, you know, saying, could this be the Christ? Um, Others becoming sort of upset, and others yet believing, it says in the passage from last week. This question continues to grow, and in all reality becomes the reason that Jesus is put to death, as we will see not only this morning, but as we progress in the Gospel of John. If he truly is the Messiah, the problem is, for the religious leaders, is he is not the Messiah which they desired. And just as much as they misunderstood or even desired him to be a different kind of Messiah, and did not believe that he was from the Father, they misunderstood the end of his mission as well. They they misunderstood the whole trajectory of his mission, and they misunderstood the very end of his mission mission as well. I mean, essentially, just to boil it down to the facts, Jesus is talking about his ascension this morning, that he will go back to the Father, which is something that he actually um, explains a bit more in John chapter 17, as we will see. And uh, we just see this beautiful landscape that the Apostle John uh, sort of paints for us as he writes this narrative. If you think about John chapter 1 and the way, in, we call that the prologue in John, the way in which he kind of outlines the book for us. And then as we see these themes kind of developing and blooming over time, it's no surprise to us that when Jesus kind of plants the seed about his ascension, his going back to the Father, that later on in John chapter 17, we learn more about this. And and let me just say, for those who are here this morning in this time, and for those who are watching over the live stream, you get way more of this stuff than the second service does, because I for, this is some of this is ad-libbed, and I forget it when I come to the second service. So um, it just, I, I should be writing notes as I'm saying some of these things, but I'm a little more wooden in the second one. Like, I don't want to forget what I said earlier, but I always do. But they misunderstand the end of his mission. 
that he is not here to be a, in a sense, a social revolutionary as what they wanted him to be. One who would, as we'll see, uh, either join Rome so that they could keep their position or overturn Rome so that what they had coming to them, they would get back. And so to think about him actually going somewhere else does not seem like the end of the mission that they desired. We'll see all of this come to light more and more in our text this morning. But here's the main point. This is written for you on the back of your worship folder. It's available to you through email if you are watching from home. Just as we must understand and believe where Jesus came from and what his mission was, we must understand where he was going when his mission was accomplished. Now, typically my main points are not this long, but we kind of need to get all three of those elements there. Believing where he came from, that he is from the Father, sent from the Father, uh, one of the theological um, points that we've been trying to make about this is that Jesus is from the Father eternally, and therefore he is the one of the Trinity who is sent. And we must understand what his mission is was what he came to do. He came to seek and to save those who were lost. By the way, just thinking of that, remember what Jesus says to Pilate when Pilate says something about him being a king. He says, my kingdom is what? Not of this world. He makes it very plain that his mission is not to come and establish a kingdom in his first coming. That is the mission of his second coming. But we also must understand his ascension, and the importance of that. And and again, we'll see that uh, flow more and more from this text. In fact, just a a few verses from now, we won't see this this morning, but as we study this, Jesus is going to talk about living water, and John explains that that is the coming of the Spirit. And guess what it says there? The Spirit had not come yet because what? Jesus had not yet been what? Glorified. So this is a seed that Jesus plants here about his ascension, and it's so important for us to see this. Now, I want us to see this morning three steps in answering the question posed in our text. Three steps in answering the question posed in our text. And it's kind of funny that I end the whole thing with the idea that they didn't, they still had questions. But for us, on our side of things, as we look at it, we understand that this is answering the question for us. The first step is this an attempted arrest in verse 32. An attempted arrest. Uh, look at it with me again, if you would. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Well, what are these things that were muttered about him? If you look back into the passage which we studied together last week, you see that um, in the very beginning there, they say things like, is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they're not saying anything. In other words, are they in an affirmation, in agreement with him? Because here he is, they're wanting to arrest him, and yet he is speaking openly and they're not taking him. They're not arresting him. They're not killing him. And then they begin to question about this idea of where he is from. And then Jesus teaches in the temple. He proclaims that they, they know him and they know where he comes from, but they do not understand his mission as sent from the Father and that he is sent uh, there to do what, uh, to seek and to save those who are lost. But then we see this great passage, this great verse at the end where it says that some believed in him. But these are the mutterings that the Pharisees are hearing. The Pharisees, of course, being those religious leaders we spoke of earlier who are in great opposition to Jesus. 
And they hear the muttering and they attempt to arrest him. The whole point or the whole reason that these questions even come up, the question that needs to be answered this morning, uh, where is he going, is because they seek to arrest him. And again, this is predicated on the crowds speaking about him in the last passage. It is because of this that particularly the chief priest is wanting him arrested. The idea of arrested here in the original language is seizing someone. And it has already been shown that this was widely known, that they wanted not only to arrest Jesus, but to put him to death. Remember, we need to look at passages in their context. And so the people are already saying things like, is this not the one whom they seek to kill? And so when you hear something in the next passage that says that the chief priests and the religious leaders are wanting to arrest him, The thought is not just simply to seize him, but to seize him with the purpose of killing him. What one comes to discover in time is that the Pharisees feel threatened by Jesus and are fearful that if they let him go on like this, they will lose their place and power with the Roman government. And that becomes very plain in John chapter 11. As more people believe in Jesus, the less it looks like he is there to set up an earthly kingdom in cooperation with or in overturning the Roman government. If he is not a political insurrectionist who promises to give Israel back what is rightly theirs, the reality is is that they're not interested in him. And as we sort of head towards John 11, which is a big turning point in the Gospel of John, what we realize is likely the religious leaders knew exactly who Jesus was. They could not deny that he was the Messiah. And they crucify him anyway. If he is not at least going to perpetuate the current condition that we are in, keeping our power with Rome, we are not interested in him. The kind of insurrection that Jesus brings is a spiritual one in which he is calling dead sinners out of a dead religion which cannot save them. That is what he came to do. He came to seek and to save those which are lost. So the best thing the chief priest can do in accordance with God's plan is actually have Jesus seized and put to death. But it is not yet his time. And, and here is, I think this is written for you on your bulletin for the kids. I'm trying to include these little points for children. And here's a parent, you can go over this. Children, listen to me. Jesus did not come to do what we want him to do. He came to obey the plan of God. That's a good point for us as well, is it not adults? (laughs) We don't get to have a personal Jesus crafted in the way that we want him to be crafted. We have the eternal Son of God coming and putting on flesh and in so doing, coming to seek and to save those which were lost resurrected three days later, and ascended on high, sitting at the right hand of the Father, reigning, waiting for His enemies to be made His footstool until He comes to earth to make His kingdom known. A word of application for us is that we cannot make Jesus, make the Messiah who we want Him to be. He either comes to do the will of Him who sent Him and we trust Him or we don't trust Him at all. Here we find ourselves in the already not yet tension we live in after the resurrection of Jesus. 
In one sense, the mission is complete. Christ has already come to do what he was sent to do. He lived a perfect life, died the death that we deserved, resurrected from the dead, and has ascended on high. Again, now reigning at the right hand of the Father, and we are his representatives. So as we think about how does this make application for us, as we've seen that he has completed the mission, as we have seen that we cannot have a Jesus that we desire, but who he truly is, we are his representatives his kingdom ambassadors, as we await his return, when, get this, when he will take us where he is. That's the exciting part. In this already not yet tension as kingdom ambassadors, it is not about our agenda, but God's agenda. We are those who are called to a dual task, to love God and love neighbor, and what is born out of that is the great commission to make disciples. We are now sent by God into the world to make disciples. And that is our task. That is what God has called us to do. That's one of the reasons why we emphasize discipleship so much in this local assembly. Because we are called to come alongside of one another, to, to bear each other's burdens, to pray for one another, to encourage each other towards righteousness, to lovingly and gently rebuke when it is necessary, calling people back to obedience, not to earn anything from God, but because Jesus Christ has earned it all already. This is the dual task to which we are called as kingdom ambassadors. Why have we been left here? Why is God making us more into the image of Christ? It is for this purpose. We're not trying to convince people of our political positions or to maintain a certain standard of life. We are not selling the American dream. We are proclaiming to people the truth of the gospel and calling each other to live as those who have been transformed from darkness into light. And Jesus promises that if we pursue his agenda for us, we will be hated by the world. Didn't see that coming, did you? I thought you were going to say something about blessing. No, we will be hated by the world. That's one of the promises. Just as the Pharisees were seeking to arrest him because he did not fit their agenda, we will become the target of hatred because we will find ourselves on the outskirts of this world's agenda when we follow him. Even in this text, as this command is given to arrest Jesus, we secondly see Jesus gives a confounding response. Jesus actually, in a sense, sort of inflames righteously because that's all he can do, the situation with truth. Look at verses 33 and 34 once again. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am coming, you cannot come. He says, I will be with you a little longer. This likely is tied to the idea of his hour not being Yet. So that's what it says in the last passage. They could not seize him because it was not yet his hour. It's according to God's plan and God's timing that he will be arrested and put to death. But we must remember here's the point that we're driving at this morning. This, even this, is not the end. But he will be raised and he ascends to the Father. This is clearly the implica- implication given by what he says here. It, it's, it's a. It's a landscape. It's a vista that he gives. He says, um, look, I am not going to be with you much longer, but I am going to return to him who sent me. One who is seized and put to death would seem to have the end uh, of the threat of interference. In other words, 
Jesus is well aware of the threat against his life. And yet he speaks of going somewhere they cannot go. I am only going to be with you a little longer. And, and, and maybe the first response to that is, that's right. You're only going to be with us a little while longer. We're going to seize you and we're going to put you to death. And this will all be over. Actually, history, both biblical history and uh, outside of the Bible history, written history, shows that this kind of thing has happened, that the religious officials uh, did this with insurrectionists. Remember the words of Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5 when the apostles were still preaching in the name of Jesus and the Pharisees were trying to stop them. This is what Gamaliel says in, in Acts chapter 5. Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men, the apostles. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. What a thing to say. From Gamaliel, who, by the way, is Paul's mentor. Think about that for a minute. Think about Paul's conversion. But what is he saying? Look, this, these kind of people come along all the time. They, they rise up. They say that they're the Messiah. They say that they're someone special. Then they're killed and their, their followers are dispersed. Well, what does Gamaliel have in mind in Acts chapter 5? Jesus has already been killed. This is either not going to last very long or this is of God. Well, he was right on the second point, wasn't he? And even his own mentee came to know that, Paul the Apostle. In the same way, those who are confronting Jesus in this scenario may actually begin to understand here what he has come to do, but it is not according to their plan. In reality, this one whom they will eventually arrest and put to death, accomplishes the very task for which he has been sent. The saving of many. The saving of many. And even as this is true, the fullness of this salvation is not simply in his death, but in his resurrection and his ascension as well. Now, let's think about resurrection for a minute. When Christ is resurrected, he is resurrected in a Trinitarian uh, manner. Forgive me. Acts chapter 3 and verse 15 says, God raised him from the dead. John chapter 10 and verse 18 says, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, He, that is Jesus, declared, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus is raised from the dead according to the plan of God. I am not going to be with you for very long, he says. In their minds, you're right. (laughs) We're going to put you to death. I'm not going to be with you for very long, though, because I am going to be raised from the dead. It's a Trinitarian resurrection. Not only this, but subsequent to his resurrection, he will ascend to the Father, where he will be restored to his former glory. We're going to see this in John chapter 17 when we get there, but listen to it now. I glorified you on the earth, Jesus speaking to the Father, having accomplished the work that you gave to me. 
that you gave me to do? Is this not resonant with the language that we are talking about here in John chapter 7? And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. If you're familiar with John chapter 1, these kind of themes are popping in your head. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created by Him. Jesus takes this further by stating that once this occurs, they will seek for Him and will not be able to find Him. Ultimately, they will not be able to get to Him. In the first, it says they will not be able to find Him. Clearly, this is a reference to His ascension. Jesus only walks the earth about 40 days after His resurrection, and He then ascends to the Father. Jesus speaks with a sense of irony here. Just as they seek to arrest him and put him to death, there is coming a time when they will seek to find him and they will not be able to. However, in line with that, we have already stated that about those who follow him, it comes with a cost. It comes with a cost. If we have believed in Jesus, there is a cost in following him. And just as they came after Jesus, just as they sought to seize him and arrest him, they will also likewise persecute those who follow him. Listen to Paul in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, speaking to the church, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, Paul is not saying that his suffering is making up for what Christ's suffering lacked. Atonement is final. Full atonement was uh, what was accomplished at the cross. But rather that those who came after Christ, just as they are coming after Christ in John chapter 7, those who came after Christ, their rage was not satisfied in putting him to death. Paul is saying, they are now coming after me. And what does Jesus say? If the world hates me, it will also hate who? Us, you and me. Think about Paul for a minute. What was Paul doing before he came to faith in Christ, before Christ met him on the road to Damascus? He was doing what? He was persecuting the church. He was doing the very thing that Jesus promised would happen. And then what happens to Paul? He, he, he in God's grace and mercy, Uh, comes to startling faith, meets the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus in a vision. And Paul, after coming to Christ, is the one who is now persecuted, filling up what is lacking in Christ's suffering. He went from the one who persecuted to the one who was being persecuted. It's the same for those of us who are in Christ. But here in our text, we also see Jesus condemns them with his words. Since they will not be able to go where he is, they will not go where he is going. They will not find themselves in the presence of his glory and the presence of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They will not be with him. And even if they come after his saints... And persecute us. Our hope is not even in this world. But in what hope? That we will be with him. 
even if that means we wait until he comes to get us. Children, here's a really easy way to remember this point this morning. As Jesus came to earth to save sinners, so he returns to heaven until he comes to get us again. Even as Jesus came to earth to save sinners, so he returns to heaven until he comes to get us again. Here's the good news. He's coming again. And what does it say? When he comes again, he will take us to be with him. We will, as those who are in Christ, go where he has gone. It's good news. But this answer that he gives is indeed confounding the religious leaders which leads them to asking an unanswered question as we see thirdly. Now, it's unanswered in the sense that we're going to stop our study here this morning. But even what Jesus eventually ends up answering with in the, as he stands up and, and proclaims at the Feast of Tabernacles once again does not fit their agenda. An, un, an unanswered question, a question unanswered in verses 35 and 36. Look at this with me if you would. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Here, here, here just real kind of vernacular of the day, they just flat don't get it. They don't understand. Their eyes are blinded by the God of this world, by Satan, and their hearts are hard, and the truths actually harden their hearts even more. And yet, it seems... As if their question, in a sense, in and of itself, speaks prophetically of the ingathering of the Gentiles. Isn't it interesting that they say, where is he going? Is he going to go and preach this to the Gentiles? Even in their question, without knowing it, they are prophesying of what will occur. Listen to what D.A. Carson says. He says, the Johannine, that just means like the John, the Johannine irony is very thickly laid on. Not only will serious readers of this gospel remember that within six months, uh, uh, the question of visiting proselytes will signal for Jesus the onset of the last hour in chapter 12 and verse 20. But after the cross, resurrection, and ascension, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed would in fact be spread in Jewish and Gentile circles throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. They could not see that in their misunderstanding, they actually prophesied what is going to happen. Jesus does go and preach to the periphery of Israel. The woman at the well is a Samaritan. She's a mixed Jew and and, uh, Syrian. A Syrian, forgive me. And we will see, as as, uh, D.A. Carson mentions, that the Greeks come seeking him at the feast of the Passover. What do they say? Sirs, we want to see Jesus. Already, his message is spreading to the outer regions. And yet, here in this moment, the Pharisees are baffled by his words. What does he mean? What does he mean by this? Those whose eyes are not blinded do not understand. I'm sorry, those whose eyes are blinded do not understand the true mission of Jesus. They cannot comprehend what he has come to do. It doesn't fit their preconceived notions of Messiah. They cannot comprehend that he is truly from heaven, truly sent from the Father, and that he will return to the glory that he had with his Father. They reject it. 
And just remember, once again, this comes in a context. This is not a text in a vacuum where they have not heard what Jesus' mission is or what he has come to do. They, they know these things, at least intellectually. They don't want to believe it. And what Jesus says here hardens their hearts even further, and they reject it. Kids, we're already back to you. <laughs> a quick one here. I plead with you, do not reject Jesus. Trust in him. Trust in him. He is who he says he is, and he came to do what he said he would come to do. Sent from the Father, and he has ascended on high after being resurrected, and we are waiting on him to return. Trust in him. Easy one for the adults too, right? Don't reject Jesus. He is who he says he is. Trust in him. Let me ask that question. Are you one who has rejected the Lord Jesus Christ? Perhaps you only have a Jesus of your own making. A Jesus who you want to fit your agenda and your timetable. You cherry pick the parts parts you like and likewise leave the parts you don't. We must take him as who he is. My call to you, my plea with you this morning is to turn from your sins and trust in Christ's perfect life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father, waiting to return. Believe the gospel message this morning. Believers, are you continuing to trust in Christ? Trust is not a one-time thing. It is how we live our lives as Christians. We should not compartmentalize our lives. This is my part for Jesus. This is my school life. This is my work life and on and on. All of life is under the Lordship of Christ. And for those who have trusted in Him, it is by His grace and His righteousness that He imparts to us, that He imputes to us, that we are able to obey Him. And you know what we do? What we find is that there is joy in that obedience. God doesn't want what is mundane for us. God wants what is joyful for us. Even though it may not feel like joy at the time. One of the promises that we believe is that we are going where he has gone. This is the hope of the believer. We will be changed through our own resurrection and we will forever be with him. Take that hope this morning. Be encouraged by that this morning, dear Christian. You know, we're in a time of turmoil in our country. We're in a time of we're not sure how things like elections are going to turn out. Can I say something to you? God knows. God is sovereign. The king is on his throne. Nothing will change that. Live for him regardless of what happens. And know that this is not the end. This is not the end. We will be with him. That's what he promises. What does he say? I go to prepare a place for you. That where I am, you may be also. That's the promise. He says to those who reject him, you cannot go where I am going. He says to those of us who are in Christ, I've gone ahead. The place is being prepared. I'm taking you with me. Are you encouraging one another with these truths? Or are you relying on the pleasures of this world to fill you up?
Can I be honest with you? And you know this because you've felt it. It will never satisfy. Encourage each other with the truth of eternally dwelling with the Father, Son, and Spirit. This is not the end. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you that your wisdom confounds the wisdom of this world. And that you have, by your grace and mercy, granted that our eyes would be open. We're not any more special than anybody else, Lord. You have granted by your grace and mercy that our eyes would be open to the truth of the gospel. And that this promise would rest upon our hearts, not because of something that we have conjured up within us, but because of the faith that you have given us by your word, you have promised it, and by your spirit. Lord, you comfort us. I know that many of my brothers and sisters have many different things going on in their lives and they need that comfort this morning. They need to hear that this is not the end. And we need to remind each other of that. Lord, may we be encouraged by that this morning. And may the one who is here this morning who does not know you be convicted by your spirit that they would come to faith in Christ this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.